1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Hey,
0: Holly.
2: Hey, Dave.
0: How are you feeling today on the What Differences Make podcast?
2: I am feeling fabuloso today. How are you feeling?
0: Okay. I just trying to think of some 80s photograph, you know, oh. Def Leopard photograph or centerfold, but there's there's a lot of uh, 80s songs that talk about photographs. Photos used to be important, Holly. Girls on film? Girls on film, yeah. He filmed some girls on film, he got some boys on film. This is, who are we talking about who got these boys and girls on film?
2: Today, our guest is Steve Rapport. He is a fabulous rock photographer, he has photographed all of our favorite bands from the 80s, and he has stories about each and every one of them, as I learned from his website, com, and cannot wait to ask him stories about some of our favorites.
0: He lived during a time where it was kind of exciting, where you can take a photograph and send it to a magazine, and the magazine would respond and say, hey, we like your work. We got a good summer job for you. How about uh, filming The Clash for us?
2: Yeah, imagine that. Back in the day.
0: Yeah. So we're going to get into a lot of his stories. And before we do that, Holly, how do we tell our stories?
2: We tell our stories on our social media, on the What Difference Does It Make YouTube channel and on our social media at WDDIM podcast. You will see outtakes from this interview with Steve and also some of his beautiful artwork we're going to showcase.
0: This is Steve Rapport on the What Difference Does It Make podcast. Hi. Hi. Hello there. (laughs) Hi, Steve. How are you? Good, thanks. How are you? I'm
2: fine, thank you.
0: Good. Where are you in right now?
1: What city? Probably New Orleans. Probably. Or New Orleans. Yeah, exactly. Right. you got to learn how to pronounce this. I hear people from here go, New Orleans. (laughs) Even though most people say, you know, New Orleans, New Orleans, New Orleans, New Orleans. I mean, I hear it every which way. And and that's not even... that's from like, Louisiana and so
0: just say Nollins. N A W L I N S.
1: I can't say that because I feel like I'm betraying myself if I say that.
2: I wonder if that's a thing like I I have heard that and I've seen it written that way from in books that are set in New Orleans. But I wonder if that's a thing like San Francisco, like people who refer to San Francisco as Frisco, which you don't really do.
1: No, you do not do no. no. Oh,
2: you know, you you live
1: there. Yeah, I just moved from there 30 awesome. years.
0: Well, we're from Los Angeles, so we really don't care about
1: San Francisco. <laughs> anyway, moving on. So, so yesterday, can I just tell you what happened yesterday? So I was in the gallery yesterday, and um, my friend Ben, Ben Jaffe is kind of the main reason I moved here. But Ben texts me and says, where are you? So I'm at the gallery. He said, oh, um, well, Amy Schumer's here, so I, w- I want to bring her over. I said, oh, okay, that'd be great. So <laughs> Amy Schumer comes into the gallery and then she looks around and she says, yeah, I definitely want to buy stuff, some stuff. I'll bring my husband in here. You know, we're moving here. We bought, they bought a house in New Orleans. And then she says, do you want to shoot my show? She's playing at the Sanger last night. So I'm like, yes. And then Ben Ben is a partner of the Toulouse Theatre, so she's also doing an after show show at the Toulouse. So I end up taking pictures of Amy at the Sanger, being on stage with her at the end to get that shot of her walking off stage. Did some pictures in the dressing room beforehand and um, got some pictures of her at the... At the Toulouse, and I just can't believe that my life has turned out like this. I looked her up on Instagram afterwards to see, you know, just to follow her, and I thought, oh, she's got twelve thousand followers. That's 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 the same as me. And then I reread it, and it said twelve point one million. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> thought, that, that's a small country.
2: I love her. I can see how that would be a thrill of a lifetime, and I would be pinching myself.
1: You know, I just posted literally at eleven fifty nine. I was just about to go into this Zoom and I just finished posting an Instagram post saying, you know, in your Orleans, you have to expect the unexpected for that moment that Amy Schumer comes into your gallery and then says, do you want to shoot my show tonight? And suddenly, you know, your day completely changes, your night completely changes.
2: I'm busy tonight. Sorry, I wish I could.
1: <laughs> I was thinking of saying that. I, I was actually going to go to this jazz thing that I go to on a Thursday night, but um, I managed not to say that out loud.
2: Okay, so when you went to the show... Obviously, you're focused on what you're doing, but were you able to listen to her at all? Or did you? Was it it just.
1: When I was shooting the actual show, it seriously, it was a bit hard to shoot while you're laughing because you, you know, you got to keep the camera still. And um, I'm trying to be unobtrusive as well. So that's a pretty funny experience.
0: Did you give her access to the photos? Or what what happens during shows like this? Like when it's just kind of an impromptu thing? Do you send her all the photos or are these your property now? And, and, you know.
1: Good question, because we just left it at that. Amy said, do you want to come and shoot the show? I said, yes. And then her assistant, LC, she said, let me put you in touch with this person who's going to pay you. I'm like, oh, we didn't discuss payment or anything. She just said, do you want to shoot the pictures? And I said, yes. And um, I got fairly unprecedented for me access, you know quick shots in the dressing room i got feedback today that she thought it was the nicest portrait she's ever had taken of her that wasn't from that was from my friend ben who's, who's good friends with amy he's the one who introduced us so you know i'm a bit speechless about the whole thing really yeah gonna go on the road with amy nice yeah i, I guess being speechless on a podcast is not the way to go so I'll, I'll...
2: <laughs> that's payment enough right that's the best portrait of me ever
1: <laughs> um, uh, i don't think that pays the rent <laughs> i don't know yeah we haven't it's funny that we just haven't discussed it was very it's very loose and that's my life right now. It's just I just shoot I just like shooting and'm I'm, and I'm old so you know I don't really need to, I'm not hustling for money. It's nice. It's really liberating.
2: Okay, you're you're leading into it. So what we read, you were photographing these artists, and then you dropped out of photography, and you became a, a Taekwondo martial arts instructor, <laughs> but without explaining how you get there.
1: You know, there's that Monty Python sketch where a guy is a chartered accountant, and he wants to be a lion tamer, and he's going to career advice and says, I want to be a lion tamer. I want to be out there taming lions. And he says... Do you not think you should take it in steps and maybe maybe via banking, let's say banking? So I just, I didn't really do it via banking. I just went from, actually, I went from photographer to web developer to managing web developers and then teaching martial arts in the evenings. And then when I got laid off from my second dot-com job, or got laid off for the second time from a dot-com job, I bought the school that I'd been teaching taekwondo and kickboxing at, and I did that for 20 years. And then I was known as this, you know, I had these pictures... For several years i had these pictures in the stairwell at my gym of you know david bowie and prince and no one really knew exactly what to make of it like oh i guess he likes music and i play music you know during the classes but i'm not sure too many people put together for a long time that you know that was my career some people did i was saying this morning i went to an exercise class this morning at my local gym and um, we were talking about david bowie and i said there was a, there was a kickboxing class you know we had these stretching bars in the in the upstairs gym we we're doing our warm-ups and then i told the class Go and stand by the wall. As I said that, David Bowie was singing, standing by the wall. And I said, did you hear that? That's amazing. And, you know, in New Orleans, that is pretty much at least once a day. Ghosts or what
0: or just uh, unexplained occurrences. <laughs>
1: so yesterday, I was in the gallery yesterday and this bloke comes in and I was playing uh, Songs to Sing on by Echo and the Bunnymen, one of my favorite bands. This bloke comes in, and he's looking through some note cards, and I look over, and he's singing the words. Oh, you're singing along with Echo and the Bunnymen. That's amazing. And then he pulls up his sleeve, and he's got lyrics from The Promise tattooed on his arm. And I just literally, like five minutes before, the first track on the album is The Promise. And he didn't hear the music and come in. He was walking down St. Peter's Street. He saw the gallery came in is looking through and I have a Echo and the Bunny Man book and he's got a, a bunny man tattoo. I mean I, I don't know what the odds are. It's not London, it's not, you know, Liverpool. It's it's New Orleans and he just he's a bunny man fan. So we had we had a lot of bunny conversations and it was very bunny. But that sort of thing, that sort of, I, I say it's magic. I say there's just magic in the streets in, in New Orleans. It's, it's incredible. The story of how I came to, you know, how I met Ben and, and how I came to move to New Orleans and how it was a confluence. It's Ben Jaffe and, uh, and Joe Strummer that got me, and The Clash that got me to New Orleans. Last December, I got a phone call. And this was weird because it was someone who found me on Instagram, found my phone number on Instagram and called me to order a print which that's the only time that's ever happened, I think. And he said, hi, my name's Ben. You know, uh, I was interested in one of your limited edition, very limited edition, 16 by 20 contact sheet prints. That's a print of a scanned contact sheet of the Clash Mm -hmm. gig from the Lyceum in 1981, October the 18th, 1981. They did seven nights at the Lyceum. This was the first night. So he said, oh, my name's Ben. And then it turns out he lives in New Orleans. So I'm like, oh, that's, that's great. I said, I'm actually coming out in March. I bought tickets ages ago to see Pogatry." So Pogatry or Pogatry in Motion, is Spider Stacy and Cot O'Rordan, otherwise known as Rocky O'Rawden, who were in the Pogues, loved the Pogues, took pictures of them back in the 80s. Spider and Louise Stacy live in New Orleans. And Louise, we were in touch because she entered one of my competitions for a, a giveaway of a Paul Weller print. She didn't win it. So we were in contact. So I thought, oh, Pogatry is playing in New Orleans at Tipitina's. And it was, you know, coming out of COVID. I thought, that's going to be my first trip. I haven't been to New Orleans since 1984 when I worked on Spandau Ballet's I'll Fly For You video. So I told Ben, I'm coming out to see Pogatry. And it's actually Pogatry, It's Spider and Cop with Los Bay Ramblers, who are a local, I think they're actually from Lafayette. They're like a Cajun band, Acadian slash Cajun band. He said, oh, well, they start telling me about his band. I'm in a band myself. Oh, what band are you in? So it's called Preservation Hall Jazz Band. I said, that sounds great. He said, well, would you like to take pictures of the band? So while we're talking, I'm looking up Preservation Hall Jazz Band and my eyes are getting really big. Well, that sounds amazing. I was just getting back into rock and roll photography, trying to, you know, make my way back in after 25, 27 years away from it. So I said, yeah, I'd love to do that. So we arranged that we'd meet when I got down there. And then uh, I finished the story on the phone call. He said, I want to buy this picture of The Clash. I'd also like to buy a print of David Bowie for my friends Win and Regine. So again, my eyes went like this. Win and Regine are your friends. I, said, I-, I love Arcade Fire. I've loved Arcade Fire since the first album. He said, yeah, they live here. I said, I didn't know they lived in New Orleans. I thought they were in Canada. So said, no, they've been here for a few years. I said, wonderful. So well he did he did we finished the conversation because after about an hour Ben said, I'm oh, sorry, I have to go and he just hung up and things like that happened and they're like I didn't close the sale. He didn't buy the print. That was really weird. Uh it's a great conversation, you know, when you when you meet someone and you just like connect immediately and we just chatted for ages about music. So I didn't hear from him for two days and then he called me back and in the meantime I look up Preservation Hall, Preservation Hall jazz band. Arcade Fire, Win & Regime, and it turns out that Arcade Fire and Ben Jaffe went to Haiti. They did this whole fundraising thing, you know, Arcade Fire have a lot to do with Haiti. Paul Beaubrun is in the band, he's from Haiti. All these connections, and then I read about Alan Jaffe. His father, who you know was a preservation musician, he and his wife came to New Orleans in 1961 from New York on a road trip, and then they fell in love with it and stayed and ended up owning and running Preservation Hall. And Ben was basically born there, grew up there, and became a Preservation Hall musician. Two days later, he calls me back and he said, I'm so sorry I had to hang up on you. While we were talking on the phone, my mother passed away.
2: Oh my God.
1: I know, right? I mean, I lost my mom, you know, 14 years ago. I I didn't even know what to say. She was sick. It was kind of expected, but still, it it was literally in the middle of our conversation. So, you know, how you, you know, that kind of somehow bonded us. It it was a very, like, kind of reaction and feeling. So, anyway, you know, he he bought the prints, he arranged for me to shoot the band. And then when I got here, met the band. And I can't explain the feeling being at Preservation Hall and then going to the back to the courtyard. I don't know if you've ever been, but it's a really, really special place for someone who loves music and loves jazz. I can honestly say, you know, I never had anyone's phone number in my life. No, no one ever gave me their phone number. Uh, maybe my friend Nasha, who was in Frankie Goes to Hollywood, he gave me his phone number. Everyone gives you their number, and and you follow them on Instagram, and they follow you back, and you message each other, and I send them pictures, and I just never experienced anything like it. So by the end of that week, Ben introduced Arcade Fire to me, and then I ended up. They hired me to shoot their shows at the Toulouse Theater. They hadn't played for two years. That was an incredible experience. End up on the stage at the back of the stage with Arcade Fire shooting that picture where they turn around. And I thought that was exceptional. I didn't realize that that's what everyone does these days because I've been out of the, you know, that <laughs> so long. I thought this was the most amazing thing ever. Wynn looks over to me and says, to, he says to the crowd, let's get a picture. And he looks over at me and like, me, you want me to go on the drum riser and take a picture? yeah apparently that's what they do now yeah by the end of that week i ended up staying longer i was supposed to be there for four days i extended my trip so that i could hang out with preservation hall jazz band they had a bunch of of events over the weekend keep shooting them and then arcade fire shows were sunday and monday and they hired me to do that and by tuesday when i went home i decided to move here called my realtor she came over on the thursday put the house on the market on the sunday sold the house on the thursday Came back about two weeks later, met a realtor on the Thursday morning to go and look at places, found this place, made an offer on the Friday, had it accepted on the Sunday, and came back again for the second weekend of Jazz Fest and stayed in my new house, sleeping on the floor, and then moved here at the end of May.
0: We are talking with mostly rock and roll photographer Steve Rapport, but we need to take five. Actually, not even five. Less than that. We will be right back.
2: And we're back on the What Difference Does It Make podcast with photographer Steve Rapport. How does one get into rock and roll photography? How does then back to the story about leaving photography and getting into martial art, teaching martial arts, and then getting back into it? How does that, that that's...
0: And tell it in 30 seconds or less,
1: please. Yeah. <laughs> In the middle of 1981, um, Robert Plant came to my university, which was University of Warwick in Coventry, uh, with the Honey Drippers. It was a charity for uh, concert for uh, International Year of the Disabled. I took pictures. They were not very good pictures. The lighting was terrible. But like in a Bruce Springsteen song, I literally got a bus from Coventry, a bus or a coach, to Victoria, uh, a bus station, and um, no phones or anything then, right? So I actually went to a phone booth, a phone box, and opened the yellow pages and looked for music papers. Now, NME was the music paper that I read, New Music Express. I thought, who would be interested in Robert Plant pictures? Not New Enemy Sounds. Called them. They said, come over to Covent Garden. I went over to Covent Garden. Eric Fuller, the picture, looked at my little portfolio, looked at the picture of Robert Plant, said, yes, we can use this. Can you write 50 words for a little caption for it, for the kind of news section? Okay, I did that. and said, well, if anything's happening in Coventry, which is where I was at university, in my third year of a Ph.D., in law and public order, imagine Coventry, the specials, the punk scene, the clash, the jam, I don't know, the members, Wire, The Damned, you know, all these stranglers, all these punk bands playing everywhere, Blondie, going to see a ton of bands all the time with all my friends, come to my office and we just listen to music. I, was, I didn't have any classes. I was supposed to write this thesis that I was not really getting very far on. They said, well, if anything is happening in Coventry, we'll get in touch with you. I don't know how they got in touch with me because a raven... Maybe they sent a raven, because how do, you get, how do you get in touch with someone in 1981? The specials are playing at Butts Stadium. I kid you not, Butts Stadium in Coventry. Do you want to take pictures? Yes. Took pictures of the specials, took a box of pictures back to London, to the magazine, to Sounds, and they said, well, look, if you were to come back to London, we could probably give you a lot of work. This is middle of 81, and it was the end of the school year. I was nowhere near finishing my thesis. I was from London, so I moved back. And boom, five or six nights a week at gigs, sometimes two gigs a night. And imagine, 81. So yeah. I know that a of a clash and then the Ramones four days later. That same year, Stray Cat, Elvis Costello, The Go-Go's, twice, I think. Just incredible. And then started doing pictures for features as well, and then for magazines, newspapers, record companies, and it just kind of took off from there. And then you're in it, so you don't really think about it you know that career lasted till 92 and it kind of tailed off because the early 80s was such a an amazing time 81 through 85 86 for me was just you know the style council echo and the bunny men just these fantastic bands that i loved i went on the road with red wedge which was a, a left the left-wing political group that billy bragg and paul weller organized so i got to ride the ride a bus with with you know the style council and billy bragg and the communards and and johnny marr and uh, lloyd cole was there and some of madness came along and Gary Kemp from Spandau Valley. It was just, it was incredible. And then I started working on, I got hired to shoot a lot of stills on videos. So starting with ABC's Poison Arrow, which was directed by Julian Temple, that was kind of a mind-blowing experience. It was very visual because it was Julian Temple. And I did a really good job on that. That was just for a magazine. And then record companies started hiring me. So a lot of Tim Pope videos, The Creatures, The Star Council, Soft Cell, Pretenders, The Cure. And then I did worked on seven Eurythmics videos. And I was the only one who was really doing that as a really important part of their career. So I worked on maybe 200 videos that you were over here would have seen on MTV. American photographers covering videos would just do like behind the scenes with the camera crew. And I thought they were horrible pictures and they just flashed. And I, I thought it was like um, my job was to be like a Hollywood film photographer, you know, movie set photographer doing Hollywood portraits. So, I try and use the lighting and the set and the makeup and the clothing and everything to make great portraits. That was kind of my goal doing that. But it was a really fun time and then much less fun. And I'd already decided to move to the States. And when I moved here to the Bay Area, just the music just wasn't as interesting to me anymore. And it was getting harder and harder and harder to work with bands.
0: What year was this? I moved in 92. Oh, so, but that was like during the, the grunge era. So, 92. that's kind of, yeah, it's kind of an interesting it time. Was.
1: It was, but, you know, I was in San Francisco and I didn't get to shoot any of the grunge bands. I went to see Pearl Jam. I saw a lot of Neil Young's shows at the Bridge Bridge School, the Bridge School Benefits. So I was really into all those bands. And he had Tom Waits there and he had had Tom Petty there and Bruce Springsteen. But that was as a punter. I wasn't photographing. So I did a bunch of stuff when I moved here for Vox magazine in England because I couldn't work for Americans, only English. I could only work for non-American based organizations because of my visa because you know, I didn't have a green card yet. So this one magazine, they sent me to L.A. a bunch to shoot. Um, Iced Tea twice, Coolio, R.E.M., I did um, The Lemonheads, Evan Dandon, and The Lemonheads, and Juliana Hatfield, P.J. Harvey. I came down to L.A. to do Mazzy Star. And most of those pictures are gone. Most of those pictures I, I don't have or I have hardly any of them, and I have no idea why. And The Verve. I spent three days with The Verve in Hollywood, which was a brilliant experience. But the magazine, the picture editor didn't like the pictures very much. So I said, okay, if you don't like those pictures, then fuck it. You know, I don't think there's any point in us working together anymore. And that, that kind of was the, the final nail in the coffin. Oh, and Prince in San Francisco, but we didn't get to meet him. So that, And that was the story. It was just, you know, you used to be able to shoot a whole show and then suddenly it became four numbers only and then three numbers only. And then sometimes it was two and occasionally it was one. I thought, this, is, this is really unprofessional. This, you can't ask someone to do their job like this photographers were really disrespected because of the paparazzi at that point they gave us all a really bad name I wasn't as much into the music although like you said there was grunge and there, I loved counting crows and I moved to San Francisco the final nail in the coffin was REM they were playing at the Shoreline Amphitheatre which is about a 50 mile drive or 40 mile drive from San Francisco but Thursday night you know it's two hours in the car and um, we got one number and this was for the Vox it was for a big feature they sent a journalist over from England I think and It was one number, and then after the one number, the security walked us all out of the shoreline. And I'm just standing outside there with my camera bag, like, what just happened? I want to see REM. I don't have a ticket. That had never happened in my life before, so I got back in the car, drove all the way back to San Francisco. So I did like a four- or five-hour trip for one number, and then this weird thing happened in the car on the way back. KFOB was, all the way back, was playing It's the End of the World as We Know It, and I Feel Fine. (laughs) They played it over and over and over again for the whole journey back. I... Okay, so so this segues into another story, which is backed by last night, because last night, after Amy Schumer at the Sanger and then at the Toulouse, the Toulouse Theatre is owned by a bunch of musicians now. And and Wynne Butler was there. So I, I hung out a little bit with Wynne. Wim. Well, Wynne's part of the story, because that trip here to New Orleans in March, when I was shooting Arcade Fire and as a preservation hall. Ben from Preservation Hall texted me and said, I'm, I'm going over to Arcade Fire's rehearsal, just one block away at the Toulouse. I said, oh, can I, will I be able to come over? He said, let me let me go over there and find out. So he goes over there and he texts me and he says, well, they're just finishing the rehearsal, but why don't you come over? So I went over and I'm standing at the back. It's like 10 people there in this theatre. And then they finish their soundtrack and they just start playing again. And they play, guess what they play all the way through? End of the world as we know it and I feel fine. And anyway, so we might as well just, you know, fuck it, just... Do what you want to.
0: Sell your house and move to New Orleans. Move
2: to New Orleans, <laughs> yeah. yeah. You might as well. I understand much better. I get the transition a little bit better because it seems like going from something so, you know, big and meaningful to you. Well, obviously, Taekwondo must mean something to you, too, if you devote your life to that for a while.
1: Thirty-second version. So as soon as I moved here, I started doing Taekwondo, and I'd been doing Jiu-Jitsu in England, uh, Japanese Jiu-Jitsu. In 95, I got my black belt, and then immediately my master had me teaching, so I was teaching three classes a week, and then started doing kickboxing as well, but this was while I was doing web design and development, and then in 92, like I said, I got laid off, I ended up buying the gym from my grandmaster, had that gym for 20-odd years through COVID, lost the gym, got sued by the landlord for all the background, and in, in that intervening period, my archive, my photo archive was in a garage in Oxfordshire from 1992 until 2017, so my friend finally boxed everything up and shipped it to me. It was in filing cabinets, and while he was trying to get these filing cabinets open, there were no keys for them, and they were locked. One of them fell on his head and had a huge gash on his head and blood everywhere, and He sent pictures of it. So that was the legacy of my archive. Tons is missing, but he did send me, you know, six filing cabinets full of, or four, four filing cabinets worth of material, and then I started scanning it, and this is literally only... What is it now coming up for five years ago? But here's the interesting thing: you don't go back through your archive. Maybe if you have a retrospective, or if you're doing a book, and a lot of my contemporaries they kept doing photography that whole time. But I think it's true for them as well. Now we're all older and started going back through our archives. And you're like, holy shit! You know, you go and see a band, and we'll see the Clash. You go through the, you process your film, you make your contact sheets, you look through them with an eyeglass, you mark up the best ones, and you print maybe three, four, five, six of them. And then, you know, you take those to the magazine or the paper, and then you've got your next job. And then time goes by and you never go back to it. And I started going through these negatives and these these contact sheets thinking, holy shit, I, I had no idea I'd taken this picture of Freddie Mercury in black and white, where he's like, mama, you know, or the picture of Joe Strummer with his arm out, which is on the wall. You can quite see it. It's on the wall behind me. I think it's right there. Yeah, these these incredible pictures I didn't know I'd taken because you never spent the time looking through your material, through your back catalogue or your archive. A bit like maybe, say, Bruce Springsteen going through his tapes every now and then and thinking, shit, I wrote this song in like 1976. Never recorded it. This is a great song.
0: You're discovering new things. Finding little details, like with Paul Weller, you see on the side of his boombox, there's a little
1: quote. Ring, ring, it's 7 a.m. from Magnificent Seven by The Clash. Oh, that made my day, that made my year, actually. Finding that link between The Clash and The and The Jam, or The Clash and Paul Weller. There is a photo of Joe Strummer and Paul Weller that I absolutely love, the two of them together. It's like a nexus. There's one I wish I'd taken.
0: All right. So the, I always ask the, the Tears for Fears quote is, uh, kick out the style, bring back the jam. Which, who were you? Were you team jam or team style?
1: Both. These days I listen to the style council a lot more than I listen to the jam. I think they were way ahead of their time. But I loved the jam. I used to go and see them a ton. I, I used to see the jam and the clash a ton. Every, every opportunity. 77, 78, 79, 80, 81. Before I was a photographer, when I would smuggle my camera in as a student and when I was a professional as well, I'm very kind of fortunate in that regard. But I, I really did love the Star Council. I love Paul Weller, and I still do. love Joe Strummer, and I still do. You know, when I go back through the archives, it's a privilege to have been at, at all those events. I, even Star Council were at Live but I think most people forget that. They were... Either the first band or one of the first bands on a live Aid.
0: Okay, so I had a couple questions. First of all, <laughs> well, I was going to ask you about uh, the Long Hot Summer. I just re watched that video and, like, oh my God, this is really, it's kind of it's hot. Mm-hmm. Tell your Long Hot Summer story and your role in that video.
1: Not sure I really had a role other than, you know, I'm taking pictures, smiling all day. It was a gorgeous day, number one. It was on the river in Cambridge, it was on the camp. It was filmed at Grandchester Meadow, which if you're an old Pink Floyd fan, that was that was a Pink Floyd very early Pink Floyd song called Grantchester Meadow because I think Sid Barrett, I think, used to live there. And I think David Gilmore or Roger lives near there now as well. And that's a recent thing that I found out, that connection between that and, and, uh, and Pink Floyd, which kind of that blew my mind as well. So it was, it was just an incredible day. It's the Tim Pope video. So Tim's really wacky. He's a wacky genius of pop videos and movies. And Paul is just really playful. Paul likes kind of fucking with people and tearing up his image and subverting his image. And he was just, you know, he's got his shirt off. It's like a picnic. It's the summer. It's a beautiful day. They're by the river. They're on, on boats. And Paul and Mick are just like stroking each other's head, and everyone's laughing, and and it became this whole thing. It became this whole oh, is Paul gay? I, I don't think yeah. Paul cares, if he's gay or not. You know, he's just stroking Mick's head. <laughs> while not wearing a shirt? Why, a
0: A lot of undertones there. Yeah, I did. Of course, I didn't realize it at the time when I was a kid. But now watching it, like, oh my god, am I really in love with Paul Weller? Like, <laughs> like
1: <laughs> I think we're all in love with Paul Weller. I mean, the pictures I have of him from that video, I mean, they're hot. Let's be honest. He's got his shirt off. Mm-hmm. He looks like a uh, some kind of god uh, in a lot of the pictures. The smoking doesn't turn me on, but he looks cool when he's smoking as well. And it's just Paul, you know. It's funny because I have the most amazing pictures, of, I think, of Paul Weller. And I spent a ton of time with him, but I didn't feel like I ever really got to know him. Not like, say, Billy Bragg. But I think it's just Paul. I think Paul's pretty shy and um, he has a lot of opinions, a lot of great opinions, actually. But I never felt like, we were necessarily mates, even though, you know, I worked together. I worked with him a lot, and I kind of wish I'd worked with him more over the years, over the late later years. But I got to take pictures of him again in May, back in England. I didn't get to meet him this time, but that was pretty special.
0: This year, we've been following the year nineteen eighty five. That seems to be a good year for you, but it's also the year of Live Aid. So, tell me, were you in London? Were you in
1: Philly? Or wh- where? Where were you? What? So this is 1981. This is the start of my career. This is 1992. 81, 82, 83, 84, 85. Whoa! Oh, 86, 87, <laughs> 88, 89, until it's gone off screen. I was kind of on the top of the world in 85. You know, I did that great shot of Annie Lennox at the Churchill Hotel, David Bowie's Loving the Alien, Single Sleeve. When I look back at the 85 stuff, Tina Turner, I think, was in 85 in the studio, um, Live Aid. So I was hired by Smash Hits. I worked a lot for Smash Hits and and they asked me to do the cover story, the Live Aid cover feature. You don't know at the time that it's going to turn out to be, you know, the biggest show in history. It was watched by 1.9 billion people. And bear in mind, there were only 4 or 5 billion people on the planet back then as well. So it was something like 40% of the world's population tuned in. So I was in London, I was at Wembley Stadium. Completely unaware, really, I think, of what's going on in Philly, other than I think it was probably on the big screen, if they had a big screen back, maybe they didn't even have a big screen back then. I don't remember. I think they'd have gaps because there'd be music going on in Philly and then it would cut back to Wembley. I never saw the the American, the whole of the American version of Live Aid. It was good. It's worth seeing. You know, there's that scene in Bohemian Rhapsody at Wembley where the camera zooms over Wembley towards the stage and you see the photo pit there. Those people there is me. I mean, I could argue that someone played me in that movie. <laughs> I mean, it was special, wasn't it? Most of my Live Aid pictures, like like most of the Live Aid photographers, have gone. They're literally gone. My understanding is that the Band Aid Trust eventually just threw them all away.
0: Wow, you didn't have possession of, of these photos, or you you gave them all to to Live Aid.
1: So, what would happen with Live Aid? None of us got paid. We all donated our fees to the to Live Aid slash Band Aid, the Band Aid Trust. And then I think we all agreed that once our papers or magazines had, had done their features we would send all the best stuff over to Live Aid, which we did. They used a lot of my pictures in the book. If anyone has the Live Aid book out there or the Live Aid calendar, I actually have both at the gallery. They used quite a few of my pictures, but we never got our pictures back from them. And then over the years, I wondered what happened to it. And one of my friends, I think it it was Andrew Catlin or Tom Sheehan went to the Band Aid Trust and they had these big garbage bags full of transparencies. And he said they weren't even in their mounts. I mean, there's no way to identify someone's photograph if it's a color transparency, except by the mount, because we'd have our own stamp and phone number and address and whatever on the mount. Once you take that transparency, which is basically just a positive-negative, positive version of a negative, which is a stupid thing to say, but anyway, you take it out of the mount, and it could be anyone's. I mean, we're all basically in the same spot, taking the same pictures. And they were just in these trash bags, and then apparently they threw them all away. Those trash bags were just tossed. And even if they weren't, no one would have known whose picture was whose anymore. So I'm lucky that I have a few fairly nice pictures from Live Aid, but I have one frame of Freddie performing on his own. I have none of Bowie. I have one of Bono, one of Brian Ferry, two of Adamant. A lot of other bands I have virtually nothing. Or I have just like crap, you know, not the good stuff. George Michael, two frames of Elton John, two, two decent frames of Paul McCartney. But... I do seem to have the images that were used in Smash It by and large and I'm not even sure if they're originals there's no way to tell with colour whether they're originals or dupes there's no way that I know because the agency that I syndicated through would, would make duplicate transparencies but it's the same film it doesn't say D on it for duplicate I suspect that all the aid pictures that I have are not originals but I'm not 100% sure the actual transparencies that I make my prints from they don't really look like originals they don't look crisp like an original film but I don't know
0: I mean, I distinctly remember Bono climbing into the, the photographer's well. How close were you during that moment?
1: I was right there. Uh, same with Freddie. Although, analyzing it a little bit, I think for Freddie, I might have been in the pit on the right and not the one in the middle. Because I had that picture, I don't know if you saw it, with the guitar over his head, and there's the starburst from the head of the guitar. And I watched that on the movie, and it looks like I wasn't where the camera was in the middle. I was, excuse me, over the side, and that's why I was able to get that picture. So maybe we moved between the different photographer's areas, or maybe we were cycled through. I don't. I really don't remember. I know I was right in the middle for the finale. I was right by the piano. So I definitely wasn't over on the right for the whole show. I don't ever remember being over there, but when I looked at the Bono coming down into the crowd, I think maybe I was over there because I have a picture of him from the side. That's the only image I have of him on his own performing. You know, it's great that I have what I have, and it's just sad that I don't have like, the pick of the bunch. But I am grateful to have any... You know, nice pics. And I found my live my found, found my live aid ticket. I have it on display at the gallery. I didn't even know we had tickets. You know, I so thought we just had passes. Uh, incidentally, I, I I never stopped shooting. I, you know, I, I took pictures of my travels. I took a lot of travel pictures and landscapes and and sunsets. And I think they're really nice, and they're notable for having no people in them. So I think this was a very conscious move on my part. I'm done with people complaining about the way they look in photos. It's not my fault. <laughs> but it's fun to be back into it at my age and taking pictures of a lot of older people. I think. Maybe I mean, we will look the way we look, you know, so.
0: Well, that brings up uh, Van Morrison. I... <laughs>
1: <laughs> I was just talking about him at the gym this morning. Because Of course uh, you I, were. My girl came on while we, while we were working out. Anyway, Van, Van the man.
0: He's cantankerous. And uh, apparently that was your experience as well. That's his reputation.
1: They wanted me to shoot the cover of the Poetic Champions Compose album. And I love Van Morrison. I've loved Van Morrison since the early 70s, I think. But, you know, not necessarily as a person, but his, his magical voice, his magical lyrics, Stream of Consciousness, one of the best Astro, albums of all time. Astral Weeks. Such a mysterious, magical Irish album. And it was really Stream of Consciousness lyrics. And what am I listening to here? That's the whole story of how I got the album, you know, from my dad. And I listened to it. i was like, what is this? And then once I listened to it a few times, I just thought it was the most amazing experience to listen to. So anyway, can you shoot the cover? But Van doesn't want to be on the cover. Uh, it's going to be He wants pictures of rolling hills with a stream in the foreground. Okay, uh, this is cutting the story short, but I drive for three days around the north of England, the Lake District, the Peak District, looking for rolling hills. There's no Google. I can't look it up and just look for pictures and say, oh, that's where I'm going. So... I got what I thought were really nice pictures, on a rented Hasselblad, you know, a two and a quarter square for album cover format. And um, word came back from Van he didn't like the pictures. Now, one of the first thing I'd said at the meetings, which Van didn't attend, was, well, why don't, why don't I do it in Ireland? And I was told, no, and, no, you're not going to Ireland. Oh, well, can I listen to, can I get a tape of the album so I can listen to it while I'm driving? No, you can't. So when Van said he didn't like the pictures, I didn't want to use them, he said, why didn't and again, not to me, this is through a third party through the record company. Why didn't he go to Ireland to shoot it? So I did, you know, face palm emoji. Yeah, I wish I'd said that. Uh, I, and it, it looks like he didn't even listen to the album. Like the pictures don't match with the music. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I wish I'd asked for a tape of the album so I could have listened to it while I was shooting the pictures. And honestly, I thought the pictures were great. I was really, really pleased with them, you know, given that I'm not even, back then, I you know, didn't call myself a landscape photographer, but I thought they were nice. They were rolling hills and streams. Van wants to reshoot and the record company won't pay for it unless Van's on the cover. Van doesn't want to be on the cover. He hates having his picture taken more than nearly anyone else I've ever met. So there's a stalemate and eventually he agrees. So... We do it in this pokey recording studio in Victoria. I think it's called Victoria Studios. So the Ben shows up and he's just so awkward. Yeah, I should show you the pictures. He's just so awkward. He's got a leather jacket on, kinda of ill fitting leather jacket. His hair is he said he just got his hair cut specially for the shoe and it's like and he's standing he's, he sits at the piano and he's sitting like this at the piano.
0: Like he's never just, sat behind a piano before. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it was the stiffest thing I'd ever seen in my life. And um, I got some pictures of him holding a saxophone and then these stupid palm trees and horrible microphones in the background. And I guess I was stressed because I never moved them out of the way, so they're in the back of all these shots and they look terrible. The art director actually made a really nice album cover out of it. I credit him with finding a picture, tilting it, tinting it blue, and, and I'm proud of the album cover. But on the way out, I was—I must have been waiting near the door and Van was with someone and he walked past me and he stopped and he leaned in and he said, thank you. That was a lot less painful than I thought it was going to be.
2: It seems like the ultimate compliment.
1: <laughs> That's exactly what I thought. Now, fast forward. I took pictures of Mr. Ivan Neville recently. You know his family, Neville brothers, his his dad, his uncles, were all, all in the Neville brothers. And and uh, he's a great musician. He has an, an album coming out, a solo album coming out shortly. And we did a shoot, and he also hates having his picture taken. Did not want to be on the album cover. We got on really, really well, and we got some absolutely gorgeous pictures. So hopefully one of those is going to be on the cover. But there's a picture, and he's very conscious of his age. He's not as old as me, but he's very conscious of his age. And there's this picture we did at Ajit Ben Jaffe's studio called La Casita on Dauphine Street. It's a sunroom, and I actually went outside and shot it through a screen, you know, like a window screen. It was pouring with rain. And I just—I said, can you look at me? And I just like the way it looked. He's kind of surrounded by dark, and then there's his face. And when he saw the print of it, he said, and there's a pause coming up, he said, I look really old in that picture, but I look like I've got the souls of all the Indians. And I don't know if you know Indian culture or, or, or black-masking Indian culture in New Orleans, but it's, it's a really important part of the, all of the Neville brothers' background, the meters, galactic... And it is called Indian culture here. It's not Native American. It's actually Indian, uh, also known as Mardi Gras Indians or, or Black Masking Indians. And it's something I'm really, really interested in here. So that comment, I mean, that's a nice segue because that's, that's one of the nicest comments I've ever had about a photo. And it really meant a lot to me. And I could tell it meant a lot to him because he was quite emotional when he said it. And for him to, to see a picture where he thinks he looks really old, being that self-conscious about age, and then then saying that really was something special
0: you're in the midst of a renaissance. you got Ivan Neville and you've got Amy Schumer, both of them complimenting you. Like these are the best photos uh, I've ever seen. You know, so it's, it's
1: nice. I feel like, as I say, I know what I'm doing. I don't really know what I'm doing because the technology is still so different. I'm still like feeling my way, but in terms of my eye and my eyes are not as good as they were either. But in terms of my photographic eye, I think it's more tuned in than it ever was. And I want to say something if I may, and this might sound really pretentious, but about my photography, I just used to think of myself as kind of a journeyman photographer back in the back in the eighties. Or like I was a photographer, but I wasn't at the top of my fashion. I wasn't the one who got all the high-priced album covers. When someone had a lot of money, they'd hire you know a, a French fashion photographer and pay them twenty thousand dollars, or Rebecca Blake and paid twenty thousand pounds for a cover that I could have done. You know I would have done probably for a thousand and done a much better job, I thought. So I was kind of battling that. You know I work for the music papers, but I don't get the big money record company shots and shoots necessarily and i think that informed my photography and then looking at, at my photos now from back then i think they're really good i identify them with with them very strongly now I have a great emotional attachment to them and it's partly all the comments i've had since i had the gallery since i've been doing instagram and instagram lives and selling a bunch of stuff online the comments that i get from people i didn't know i had a style i thought i was just a photographer and people said they really love your style of photography and that threw me for a loop because I have a style and it turns out I do. It was, you know, even my live shots, most photographers shoot wide. And to me, that's kind of cheating. That's just too easy. I want, I want the person, I want them up close. So my shots are all here, here, here. And if you look at the gallery as a whole, you say, oh, they all look like that. They've got a lot of black in them. They don't have a lot of background, a lot of instruments and martial amps and microphone stands and everything if possible. And I never did those shots from behind the stage with the artists in the audience. So people identify with the pictures because it's almost like their point of view, you know, from the audience looking at the stage. And all those great pictures, if you watch the the icon documentaries on rock photography, all those iconic pictures, Freddie Mercury leaning backwards, Wembley with 80,000 people, David Bowie, Milton Keynes, Bole with from the stage with the bowl full of audience. That's not your experience if you went to that show, right? You're looking at the stage, you're looking at the artist. So, to sum up, I was born in 1956, and that's the same year that Charles and Ray Ames designed the the lounge chair in ottoman, 670, 671. It's the same year that Iro Saarinen designed the Gateway to the West in St. Louis, and the tulip chairs, the tulip chair and table. So, uh, and I'm really into mid-century modernism, and I'm a mid-century boy. And Mies van der Rohe said, less is more. And I realized, in the last year, that that somehow influenced my design sense and my photography. I always thought I was unimaginative. I didn't do big setups with elaborate props and everything. And it turns out that was my strength and not my weakness. And I kind of thought it was my weakness back then. Less is more, very simple. It's just about the person. It's not about you know, me interpreting them or shooting a glamorous album cover or an imaginative one. Like the Bunny man covers, they're magnificent, Brian Griffin, but then that's just not me. That's just not what I did. It's not my vision. I don't have that vision to do what Brian Griffin did. But I still think I have my own strengths that, that I thought were weaknesses, but they're not. Does that make sense? Yeah.
2: Yes. So, that's throwing. the wisdom we gather after a lifetime, right? Yeah. Appreciation of yourself and your talents, your strong suits. You gather more from about the artist from what you're seeing personally.
0: All right. Go to work,
1: man. What are you doing here? Come on! This, this was so much fun, though. I, I mean, I could talk to you for hours. I feel I, I didn't really answer your questions, and I didn't really tell us points to here. But
0: no, that's usually when it's for the best. When they, when everyone, someone just goes off on on different tangents. I,
2: we love that. Yeah, it makes it makes more more interesting and spontaneous. So, but yes, we definitely would love to for you to come back and hear some more stories.
1: Okay. All right.
0: Care. Yeah. Cheers.
2: Bye. Thanks, Bye. Steve. Bye.
0: All right. Wonderful talk with a amazing photographer, Steve Rappel. That was really nice.
2: I can't get enough. If you want more stories, you can check out his website at mostlyrockandroll.com.
0: He's got some wonderful stories and you can see a lot of his photos there. And where can you find photos of Holly and Dave? Where, Where do you find us?
2: If you feel so inclined at WDDIM Podcast and on our YouTube channel at What Difference Does It Make Podcast.
0: We have new episodes every Friday. Please like and subscribe. Do all those things. Give us a nice review if you like us or whatever you think. Uh, Reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you. Okay, now that our time is nine. So until next week, this is Dave. This
2: is Holly. Check you later. Over and out.
3: It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football